Here on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor, Pastor Steve Converse, returns us to the book of Hebrews as we take a look at the preeminence of Christ. We're in God's final word next on Graceful Truth. I don't know about you, but I've always considered the first chapter of Hebrews a marvelous way to lay out for us just exactly how God has spoken to us in the past and how He speaks to us today. Hello, welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our time together today will take us to Hebrews chapter 1. It's there that we see God's final word in the matter. In various times and in various ways, he has indeed spoken to us in the past, but now through Jesus Christ. And indeed, we find great comfort and great hope in that manner. Please join us with this edition of Graceful Truth. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. You can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. We're doing a little series for Christmas. Title is God's Final word in his son out of Hebrews chapter 1. Just in way of review from last week, we've looked at over the years the Christmas story as the Gospels tell it and we thought this year we would take a little different look and look at the book of Hebrews. It's another perspective on the birth of Christ. Really, truly is the perspective from God himself. Gospels basically describe the birth of Christ with just a few words and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's all we basically know. I mean, it gives the details of where and all that. But as far as the actual birth of the Son of God, it's hard to believe that that's all that the Gospels say about it. And so it's good to look through the New Testament and to find that even though they don't talk about the wise men in the manger and all the other stuff, the stable and all that, they do talk about the birth of Christ, even though from a different angle. It gives us a different insight into Christ's birth. Uh, Because you you have to remember that back when Christ was born, there was nothing to identify that child from any other child who had been born. There wasn't a halo around his head. You know, he didn't glow or anything like that. He was a normal human baby, even though he was the very God incarnate. And so this really gives us God's perspective, you might say, on the incarnation. Last week we looked at, first of all, the preparation. And we looked at verse 1 where it says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. And we talked about that being the preparation for Christ. And then we looked at the presentation of Christ in verse 2. Because it says there that God spoke in various times over a period of time and in various ways. You look at the Old Testament books, all the different ways that he spoke to the fathers by the prophets, then it says in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Spoken to us by his son. That's when revelation was complete. There's nothing to be said after the son of God had become incarnate. What's he mean by that? He means God said all that he has to say. When he sent his son, there was nothing more that needed to be said. And you you can ask the question, well, doesn't the New Testament end at, or why doesn't the New Testament then end at the Gospels? You can ask that question. If when Jesus was born, if everything was done, well, then why do we have all the epistles that came after the Gospels? Because you have to understand, the Gospels give the story of Jesus Christ. It gives us a historical perspective, a human perspective. 
And when you look at those four Gospels, each writer is coming at it from a different angle. Four different views of Christ. But the story really doesn't, it doesn't end there. Uh, it ends with Jesus going back into heaven. It doesn't end at the manger. It ends up with him going back into heaven at the Gospels and that he'll be promising to return. But the rest of the New Testament then, kind of in addition to those Gospels and that revelation. It looks back at Christ and it focuses on interpreting and, and kind of understanding the significance of his incarnation and his resurrection and his death and everything. It kind of explains what actually happened in the life of Christ for us in a theological way, you might say. So it's important to understand that, that Christ was, first of all, it was prepared for him. And then it was also, he was presented to us because he's spoken to us by his son. And that's why today we don't believe in divine revelation as, it's, as, as some do. I think the Bible has pretty much closed the book on that. We have the canon of scripture. That's what we need. When people start saying, oh, I have a new gospel or I have a new word from the Lord or a new vision. Well, then really, if it's God's word, if it's literally, thus saith the Lord, why don't we just add it to the back of the book? You wouldn't do that because God's revelation is complete in his son. And so you have to be careful. Nowadays, people have a voice. You hear the voice of God all over the place. And you have to be discerning. And so you always have to take whatever that is. God can work in, in different ways. He can influence us through the Spirit. I'm not saying he, he doesn't do that. He does. But it always has to drive with what we already have revealed in Scripture. Jesus isn't going to tell you to do something that contradicts his already revealed word. Now, you notice that little phrase there. In verse 2, it says, has in these last days. That's a very familiar phrase to um, a Jew, and that's who this book is basically written to, Messianic Jews, and some, even those who have yet to be believers in the Messiah. That's who Hebrews was written to. But they would identify that, that phrase as the Messianic age. It's like the latter days. Ever since Jesus came, we've been in the latter days. Do you understand that? Some say, when is the latter days going to start? Well, we were already in the last days. We're in the latter days right now. Ever since the Messiah was born, we've been in the latter days. God spoke, and he spoke through his son, who was God incarnate. See, he's not just another prophet. He's not just another teacher. He is God. The Bible clearly points that out. And we're going to look a little bit at that this morning. And we have all the words of the Old Testament that were kind of, they didn't make a whole lot of sense because... It was leading up to something, but we didn't know what the something was. And so now we have the complete revelation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and now all the pictures of the puzzle are put together. Because Jesus said, remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father, right? And I don't know how that exactly works. I don't know how that little baby lying in a manger can be fully man and fully God. I don't know. If you figure it out, let me know. We were talking about that a little bit on Wednesday night at our Bible study. Uh, we don't understand that mystery of godliness that came down and, and became human, and yet he was still fully God. But that's what the Bible says. And so there was a preparation for Christ laid out in the Old Testament, and then he presented Christ as he spoke through the Word of God. And I think from there, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the preeminence, what I'm going to call it, of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. It says there in verses 2 and 3, and I'll just read this for us. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also 
made the worlds, who being the, bright, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the mystery of the majesty on high. And so we see seven different attributes, you might say, or, or seven different uh, presentation items here in these couple verses of Christ. And it speaks of his, his, his preeminence, of him being uh, deity, of him being Christ. The first one is his inheritance. His inheritance. It says, in the last days God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed, what? Heir of all things. See, if Jesus Christ is God, then he is heir of all that God possesses. What does God possess? Everything. Everything that exists. And I think that that's an important thing for us to understand. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And it continues there in verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations of thine inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is thy possessions. You shall break them as a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them as earthenware. And then even in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, it says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn here doesn't mean that Christ didn't exist before he was born. That's not what he's talking about. It's not primarily a chronological term, but it has to do with legal rights. It has to do with those who are going to inherit something, and they have the authority uh, to inherit those things. So God's destined kingdom will be, in the last days, given, finally, to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He possesses everything. Paul explained that all things not only were created by Christ, but who? But for Christ, in Colossians 1.16. Even in Romans 11.36, it says this, from him and through him and to him, what? Are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, everything that exists, exists in Jesus Christ. Everything. What truth proves that better than the truth that he was equal with God? That he was equal with God. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. It says here in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw... In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The scroll is the title deed to the earth and all that is in it. Everything that's possessed within the earth, that's what this is. It's a title deed. It is the deed to the heir, the one who has the right to take the earth. In the New Testament, Roman law required that a will had to be sealed seven times in order to protect anyone from messing around with it. And so as you roll these scrolls up, you would seal it at every turn for seven turns. And the, the seals were not to be broken until the person who was legitimately the heir of that deed, then he could break that after the person died. But John continues there in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? So John is kind of perplexed a little bit here. In verse 4 or verse 3, he says, No one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. There was nobody qualified. Verse 4, So I wept very much, John says, 
because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now you you look at those verses, and who is it talking about? It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who is worthy to open this scroll. In chapter 6 of Revelation begins the description of the the, uh, tribulation, and it's the beginning of Christ. Remember we said Christ will be coming back, and he will take literally back this earth. He will establish his kingdom here on this earth. And you can go through Revelation 6 and read as he unrolls each of these seals, these scrolls are broken. In chapter 11, verse 15 of Revelation, after the seals are are broken here, it says in verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that proves the simple point that everything was given to Christ and he alone is worthy to have it. Even in Acts chapter 2 verse 36, when Peter was preaching his first sermon at Pentecost, he said this, Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So this carpenter who was nailed to a tree was in fact the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he is coming back to rule the world. That's why Satan attacked him the way he did. Satan knew exactly what was going to happen. He tried to dissuade Christ from doing that when he tempted him. He tried to have Christ usurp God's rule and bow to Satan. And remember, when Christ came to earth the first time, he, came, he became poor, the Bible says, for our sakes. He gave all that up. Luke 9.58 says that he didn't even have anywhere to lay his head. He was so poor. Even his clothes were taken from him when he died. He was buried in a grave that wasn't his. It belonged to somebody else. See, but when Christ comes back, when Christ comes to earth again, his inheritance will be full. He's going to inherit all things. And because we have put our faith, our trust in him, the Bible says that we will become fellow heirs with him. It doesn't say we'll become fellow Christ. It says we will become fellow heirs with him. When we enter into his eternal kingdom, we're going to possess jointly all that he possesses, if you can imagine that. What an amazing thing. What a blessing. We're not going to be joint Christ or joint lords, but we're going to be joint heirs, the Bible says. And so his marvelous inheritance is going to be ours as well. And even though that happens, it's amazing to me that when you look at prophecy and you look at all that was foretold about Christ and and everything that just lines up right to the T. One little thing out of place, then he's not the Messiah. 
But if you study that out, everything just lines up perfectly. And yet, some amazingly still reject him. Even though he is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. They reject the God as he was revealed in the Old Testament. And they reject the person of the New Testament. And what they do with him. But Christ truly had his inheritance. Well, the second thing that we see here is that he not only had an inheritance, but he had his power. Back to Hebrews chapter 1, it says there, through whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds. When's the last time you made anything? Maybe you put something together out of a box. Maybe you put together a model, or maybe you put together some furniture, Maybe even took some wood and sawed it and glued it and hammered it and nailed it together and made a nice piece of furniture. I don't know. That's an accomplishment. You can look back, sit back and say, wow, that's pretty neat. But can you imagine someone who made everything, created everything? That's what it says there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says, not only was he appointed, he had an inheritance, but through whom also he made the world's. Everything that we see around us, Christ is the agent through whom God made the world. He created it. John 1.3 says, all things came into being what? By him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, without Jesus Christ, we don't have anything. Nothing. No earth, no cars, no family, nothing. Not a zip. That's the power that Christ possesses. And one of the greatest proofs of his deity, the proof that that little baby in the manger was God incarnate, was his power to create. See, the ability to create things belongs to God and God alone. You know, as human beings, sometimes we think that somehow we're going to one day create something. And you've got scientists working on that even now. They want to create life. Well, they're not creating life. They're just taking what God had already created and tweaking it a little bit. That's all they're doing. And see, we need to begin to understand that only God has that supernatural power to create something out of nothing. He created everything material and everything spiritual. And you've got to remember, when Christ first created, he created everything. The Bible says, he looked at it and he said, this is good. It was good. Only since then has it been stained by the sin of mankind. But even that is going to be restored one day, Romans 8 says. It's going to be restored to what it was in the beginning. That word there, world, or all things there, through through whom he also made the worlds, worlds, it says, it's not the word that you've heard, cosmos. It's not that word. It's a different word. It's the word for ages. It's the word that means ages. See, Jesus is not just responsible for creating the physical earth, beloved. He's responsible for creating time, if you can believe that. Space, energy, matter, all that are from the hands of his creative power. Christ created the whole universe and everything in it. He made it function perfectly. And he did it without even breaking a sweat. Amazing power. John MacArthur, in one of his commentaries, he has a quotation from a Nobel laureate, Sir John Eccles, and he's a neurophysicist. And he said this, the odds against the right combination of circumstances occurring to have evolved intelligent life on earth are highly improbable. But he went on to say, 
that he believed that such did occur, <laughs> but could never happen again on planet Earth or in any other solar system for that matter. It's just, just unheard of. See, if you don't recognize the Creator, then you're going to have a real problem explaining everything about this universe, everything about our human body. Um, and yet people all the time are convinced that somehow we climbed up out of the primordial slime pit and just evolved. Circumstance, just, you know, trial and error. I mean, when you stop and you think of just your body, your body alone, who has a heart that over the normal lifetime, it beats 800 million times and pumps enough blood to fill a string of tank cars running from Boston to New York. That same man whose tiny cubit half-inch section of brain contains basically all the memories of a lifetime. I mean, you think your little SD card has a lot of power. Or your little thumb drive. Think of a human brain. Even the things you don't want to remember, you can't forget. That same man whose ear somehow transfers sound waves from air to liquid without even losing any sound. doesn't make sense. There's another brilliant scientist, A.K. Morrison, and he tells us that conditions for life on Earth demand so many billions of minute interrelated circumstances appearing simultaneously in the same infinitesimal moment that such a prospect becomes beyond belief and beyond possibility. He goes on and he talks about the vastness of our universe if you could somehow put 1.2 million Earths inside the sun, if you could do that, you would still have room for another 4.3 million moons. The sun is 865,000 miles in diameter and is 93 million miles from Earth. The next nearest star is Alpha Centauri, and it's five times larger than our sun. He created all this. The moon is only 211,463 miles away. You could walk there if you wanted to in 27 years. Ray of light travels at 186,000 miles per second, so a beam of light would reach the moon in about one and a half seconds. Don't forget, he created light too. If you could travel at that speed, it would take two minutes and 18 seconds to reach Venus, four and a half minutes to reach Mercury, one hour and 11 seconds to reach Saturn. To reach Pluto, it would take, which is 2.7 billion miles from Earth, it would take nearly four hours. If you got that far, you'd still be well inside our own solar system. The North Star is four trillion miles away, but is still nearby in relation even to known space. Betelgeuse, that one star that's way out there, eight, 880 quadrillion miles. That's 880 followed by 15 zeros. It has a diameter of 250 million miles. That's greater than the Earth's orbit. See, when you stop and you look at some of this stuff and you think, well, this just all kind of came out of a little mud pie or something. It's ridiculous. Where did it all come from? Who conceived it? Who made it? I mean, it can't be an accident. Someone made it, and the Bible tells us the maker was Christ. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. 
and we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.